Talking DLD. Developmental language disorder. One in 14. DLD. The DLD project. The Talking DLD podcast. Brought to you by the DLD project. Hi everyone, Sean here. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 1 of the Talking DLD Podcast. Our special guest today is Sam Calder, a speech pathologist and PhD candidate from Perth who is investigating grammar intervention using shape coding. Shape coding utilises colours and shapes to help kids learn how words fit together. This can be a really helpful strategy for children with DLD. So welcome Sam to the Talking DLD Podcast. How are you going? I'm well, thanks. Thanks for having me, Sean. No worries. So I'll start by getting you to talk about your connection to DLD and what brings you here today. Sure. So um, I am a speech pathologist who works uh, at a specialised school. It's designed to cater for the needs of children with DLD. This population has been the focus of my PhD research as well. My connection to DLD is probably goes back to when I was doing my undergrad in linguistics. I loved learning about language development. I loved learning about, you know, how it um, influences literacy acquisition and that type of stuff and reading and writing and all, all those other important things. But ironically, I didn't want to do um, research or uh, <laughs> do, do academia at that point in my life. So I thought, how best can I apply this love of learning about language to a real life context. And I suppose that's where I learned about the opportunities that speech pathology offer. So I was able to indulge my interests in language and learning, also helping people at the same time is a nice little, you know, payoff that you get with being a speech pathologist. Absolutely. Um, and, um, and then when I learned that there were schools in Western Australia that are actually uh, dedicated to providing support for the children with developmental language disorder, I just, I knew that's where I wanted to be. Awesome. So lots of practical experience and ironically it led you back into doing further <laughs> studies. Yeah, well, I mean, I've, I found that I um, I was really passionate as a student and, a, and a, you know, a, a new grad with using research to inform practice. It kind of, you know, I always sort of thought of them as guidelines. So this is what we should be doing, you know, with this mm. space practice. So when I found there's uh, still so much more work to be done, I thought, well, why not, you know, try to contribute to that as well if I can. So in your research, you look at the difficulties that children with DLD actually have with grammar. Can you start the podcast by explaining what you mean when you talk about grammar and what do these difficulties look or sound like? Yeah, sure. So grammar is quite a, quite a broad uh, area of, of, of language, but I sort of think of it as the... Um, referring to the rules of language. So how we organize words and sounds as well consistently from speaker to speaker to create meaning and so we can understand one another. So, you know, uh, for example, the sentence, the boy kicked the ball, there's so much in that sentence that, um, you know, it refers to grammar or relates to grammar, you know. The boy, we know the boy is the one that's kicking. So, you know, that, that, that's, that's really important. That's at the start of the sentence. Kick is what the boy is doing. Um, and the football is, you know, that follows the kick because we know that's what the boy is actually kicking. So if that order was reversed, the football's kicking the boy, the meaning is completely changed there. Um, And there's other things like that at the end of kicked, let's just know that that's happened in the past. So that's, you know, those sounds that add to the the meaning of grammar. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, the word the, 
the word the and with the boy and the football let us know it's a specific boy we're talking about and it's just specific football mm-hmm. and the fact that there's no at the end of, at the end of footballs we know there's mm-hmm. just one so mm-hmm. there's so much you know that, that goes into you know creating that one sentence that, that relates to grammar and it's it's those rules that help us understand one another Mm, and it's grammar would be different in different languages then. So you've talked about a lot of examples in English, but yes. each each language would have a variational or potentially quite different grammatical rules in which to follow. Absolutely. You know, like some languages that don't have the sounds at the end of the verb to show tense, they've got, you know, certain rise of all the words or, you know, how you might order the words differently is, is different from language to language. So if a child was having difficulties with grammar, what are the sorts of things that you uh, see or, or what parents might hear if they were hearing some difficulties with grammar? Yeah, so grammatical difficulties, it's kind of considered a hallmark of DLD. So mm. almost, you know, every child that has a developmental language disorder will have some kind of difficulty with grammar um often you sort of you notice the kiddos they leave off the little words in sentences so they might say the, the boy kicking the ball instead of the boy is or was kicking the ball mm-hmm. they leave off that past tense you know the boy just kicked the ball instead of the boy just kicked the ball they got trouble with pronouns they might say him kicked the ball or him kicked the ball instead of he kicked the ball um you know when the we ask questions, we tend to change the way we order words as well. So, you know, instead of asking, why is he sad? The child might, child with DLD might say, why him is sad? You know, they don't know that we need to reverse, that we change the order of, of words and questions. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, sometimes they'll just say, we, we get kids saying sentences that say, I'm so completely off, you know. Mm-hmm. One that always sticks in my head is, I had one kiddo telling me about a colossal squid and he said the squid sink the ship to the bottom of the ground and I'm just thinking there's so much with that <laughs> sentence <laughs> that needs you know tells me about the difficulties that child's having so yeah, yeah. And, and then like I said as well past tense in particular uh, and you know we'll get to it a bit later when we talk about my research mm-hmm. is considered a pretty reliable indicator of DLD, so you know a child's ability to add those it didn't sounds to the end of verbs, their ability to do that or not to do that is quite a reliable indicator of children with DLD. And it's probably something that people are grappling with in schools and at home all the time is hearing these errors and going, actually, yeah, what is that? Yeah, Why what is, is it? that? Yeah. Um, and then what? What's you know is is that a part of the DLD? Well, it sounds like. Yes, the grammar, as you said, is a big marker of the of having DLD, but also then I, what to do about it. So, um, but before I jump into, because I'm eager to talk about your research, what, what do you think is the biggest misconception around learning grammar? What's something that you come across? Sure. Well, I mean, um, most kiddos will learn grammar implicitly and by that i sort of mean without trying they just hear the word osmosis just happens exactly and and there's pretty good research to sort of suggest that children you know mainstream children and uh, i use mainstream now rather than Mm. typically developing because what is typically developing Mm -hmm. so i'll say mainstream children will generally learn without trying but kiddos with dld will likely have a lot of trouble with this and Mm. it's just getting past that and it's a 
conversation I have with teachers and with, with caregivers all the time is, oh, they'll just grow out of it. And it's like, well, actually, perhaps they won't. So that's when, you know, intervention is indicated. When we know that a child might not grow out of it, that's when they need a little bit of extra help. And the other thing as well is that this idea of grammar being learned through osmosis, applying to reading and writing. You know, teachers <laughs> and parents often think that, oh, kids will just get it. No, I think no. that even the most, you know, highly achieving mainstream child will need some kind of instruction to use grammar well with their reading and their writing. Oh, absolutely. And I think that differentiating between implicit or just happening um, yeah. versus explicit Explicit, um, something that needs to be taught is really key, not just in grammar, but as you said, in other areas like reading, numeracy, um, you know, it was anything like my children, it's often needing to be, you know, activities of daily living. Yes. Let's, let's replace the toilet paper on the toilet roll. Um, so, you know, explicit instruction is key. Uh, so it sounds like grammar difficulties really has a huge impact on how a child with DLD is able to learn and we've we've touched on this already but can parents or or teachers expect these issues to go away with time yeah look there's there's some research and this is kind of where the jury's out i think there's a bit of research that shows that kids will eventually with dld will eventually start to learn grammar as quickly as mainstream children do mm -hmm. it's just that mainstream kiddos have a head start and unfortunately because they're learning at the same rate the DLD, the kids with DLD, yeah. Yeah, they just never catch up. Yeah. But then there's, there is some other research to show that, you know, kiddos not only start to learn grammar later, or kiddos with DLD start to learn later, but they do learn slower as well. Yeah. So either way, reading and writing, that's a language-based skill. So any difficulty in, you know, or any aspect of oral language that has difficulties, whether it's vocabulary or grammar or, or the sounds in language, is going to have a flow-on effect to reading and writing. So, and especially when, you know, the demands become more and more complex, instructions get longer, when we go to word problems with math and they're using all these, you know, words like over, under, greater than, less than, you know, that's get really complex. Um, it's going to have a flow-on effect there. And we start to see the wheels fall off the bandwagon, unfortunately, you know, if we don't have those base skills and then needing to apply them and, you know, demonstrate our knowledge using language, it can be incredibly difficult. Yeah, going from that learning language to language for learning, you know, mm. can just be such a challenge for the kiddos with DLD. So it sounds like no matter whether the, we're looking at the literature that suggests that there is a gap and it's consistent or there's a gap that potentially widens, mm. there's there's a need for focusing on grammar intervention at some point for these young ones. Yeah, yeah, they, they, they simply just don't catch up um, yeah. without any sort of intervention. And is it, it sounds like something then, if that's the case, it will persist into adulthood? Yeah, definitely, you know. Um, and, you know, you, you, do, you do hear it. You hear adults with, with uh, you know, there's grammar, grammar difficulties or if they use grammar that's great on you and you're thinking, why is that? What is it about what that person just said? It may, may be that that person has a history of DLD. Yeah. Or LD later in life. Yeah, absolutely. And they may be aware of it, but consciously working towards applying what they know. And I think that often, uh, having spoken to a number of teenagers with DLD, often people think that they're lazy or, mm. you know, not, not trying hard enough, where in fact, they're probably trying 150% yes. or 200% just to be able to 
apply what they know or if they're fatigued or, you know, a bit worn out, you know, it's, it's much harder for them to keep up with what's going on and applying what they, what they do know is correct. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And there is, a, there's a lot of social value that goes along with grammar. You know, people often would say, oh, it doesn't really matter that much, but when you think about, you know, particular key leaders that we've, mm. uh, you know, listened to in the past and you want to listen to more and have more mm. trust in and then there's those that you listen to and have less trust in, you know. Mm. Often it's got to do with grammar and the way they sound. Uh, but then you get hypercorrection too, you know. You get people using myself, uh, uh, you know, in, incorrectly and I, I'll put my little quotation marks up here because yeah. I, I like to think of myself as a descriptivist not a prescriptivist yeah. but you know you hear people say all the time oh, would you like to come with you know John and myself to the movies you know yeah. that's to me it's hyper correction someone has mm. you know you're, they're using that word actually incorrectly because I think it, it makes them sound like they're using grammar in a, in a correct way so yeah. that goes to show me there's, there's you know two ends of the spectrum there there's mm. social value with not wanting to listen to those that might sound a little bit ungrammatical and then overusing grammar because we think people like to hear how mm. well we use grammar. So obviously these difficulties are not just going to go away. We've, we've talked a little bit about the research that precedes, I guess, um, some of your, your work. So what can be done? You know, what, what actually is something that either uh, a speech pathologist can do, maybe there's something families can do or, or teachers. What can we do about grammar? Yeah, so... Given that grammar is such a hallmark of, of, of DLD, there's been a fair bit of grammar, research into grammar interventions. Still not enough, but there's been a, a fair bit. And there's more and more you know, each day, which is great. And they usually fall into one or two categories. One's being implicit interventions mm-hmm. and the other being explicit. So with implicit interventions, they're the ones where the learner or the child with DLD, they're not necessarily aware of the goal really what's happening is the therapist or the parent or the teacher, they increase the quantity and the quality of the language the child hears. So a good example is, is a, a technique called recasting. So a child might, you know, be leaving off those little words and saying, you know, the boy kicking the ball, whoever the adult is in or, you know, or whoever the um so as the agent of intervention is in that context would say you know, the boy is kicking the ball or the boy was kicking the ball or the girl is pushing the pram or you know whatever whatever it is that's happening um you're really focusing in on that error there you know if it's yeah. past tense you know uh the girl just kicked the ball the agent of intervention whether it's the caregiver the teacher or the therapist would say the girl just kicked the ball, you know, really Mm. emphasising it over and over again. So stressing that key error or key word that's being missed so that the child with DLD hears it more than the other words in the sentence. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and there's, again, there's some sort of a bit of a debate as to whether we should be putting a lot of emphasis on it or Mm -hmm. just a little bit, you know, we don't want make it seem unnatural uh, but the point is we want to say it correctly we want the child to hear it correctly and we want their attention when we're saying it correctly so mm-hmm. attention is a really important aspect there as well okay. um, so you know keep you know keeping it nice and simple is, is quite important too mm-hmm. these interventions have mostly been researched with younger kiddos so you know I use the phrase preschool with it sort of under the age of five, mm-hmm. uh, between three and five years old. These kids have, have been researched. Uh, and because 
most research has looked into these interventions it's kind of what we consider best practice so they're, they're sort of the first port of call for when we have a child that has a grounding difficulty with us but when you look at the um the evidence and, and you know, how often this intervention is delivered by a speechy or by a caregiver or by a parent or by a teacher sorry and that's important uh, intervention has been researched with these agents of intervention so it can kind of be done by anyone but it's done, you know, once a day for five days for five weeks, you know, which is just not generally realistic when we look, you know, how we provide services, especially in Australia. Or sometimes, you know, it takes up to 96 sessions if it's delivered weekly. So that's, that's wow. two, two years nearly of intervention. So that's got me thinking, you know, it seems to work for these kiddos, but is it efficient? You know, it can be mm -hmm. effective, but is it efficient? So is there a way we can actually, you know, alert the child to sort of get their thinking involved with when it comes to intervention? So then there's this other school of, of intervention called explicit interventions, where basically you're teaching the child the rules of grammar and they're very aware of the goal. Mm -hmm. So if you're teaching past tense, you're telling the child that you've got to add a sound or some sounds to the end of the doing words to let us know it's already happened. Mm -hmm. Or if you're um, teaching uh, possessive S at the end of, you know, a word like the boy's ball or the girl's ball, you're telling them that sound at the end of boys and girls tells them they own that that ball, you know, so it's mm -hmm. being very, very specific and explicit about what the rule is. And, and most of these interventions tend to use visuals as well. So they've got some sort of visual support, whether it's um, shapes or colours or Lego or something like that to actually show the, the kiddos, you know, how to build grammar, so to speak. Uh, and, and most of this research has been done with kids over the age of eight uh, until adolescence. So, um, and it's what we call an expanding evidence base. You know, there's not a whole lot that's been done compared to implicit interventions. Mm -hmm. And what this sort of showed me as well is that we've got this intervention, these interventions for children that are under the age of five, and then we've got those that are for over the age of eight. But what about these six to seven-year-old kids yeah. that are going, you know, from learning language to language for learning? What works for these kids? Yeah, what do you do? Yeah. Um, so that there is a bit of a... a a gap in the evidence for those kiddos as well which was a bit concerning to me yeah so give us can you give us a little bit of an overview about your own research and i guess that gap that you've identified and how you've tried to contribute to the literature yeah sure so my interventions the intervention that i looked at was very much an explicit intervention so and it, it kind of came from my experiences working in the classroom working with children in small groups with children that have developmental language disorder and um everything's very explicit for these kiddos but you know didn't reflect what i was seeing in the literature so um we are looked specifically at teaching children past tense marking and the reason that we chose past tense is because a lots of kids with DLD have trouble past tense so mm -hmm. it's likely we would get some participants there and it given that it's sort of hallmark of the, um, the difficulty if we can change that if we can help improve this maybe it'll give us some insight into the underlying difficulties that this child might have with, with their grammar so for my intervention as well, I was very focused on using visuals as well. I drew upon the shape coding system, 
by Susan Evels at Morehouse School and College. So that's a system of visuals that uses specific shapes uh, and arrows to teach the rules of grammar. So mm. for example, if there's an oval that teaches us the who or the agent in the sentence. There's a hexagon that that's the doing or the verb. And there's you know a, a rectangle that tells us the what. So in the sentence, the girl is, girl kicks the football, the girl kicked the football, the girl would be in the oval, kicked would be in the hexagon, and then there would be a rectangle that had the ball in there, mm -hmm. you know, that would reflect that. And then there's these arrows that depict tense. So um, arrows that tells us whether there's something that's happening right now, or is an arrow that's telling us something that's already happened. And given that I was using past tense, I was using the arrow that showed something that's already happened. Yeah. Um, and it's just sort of contrasting those two things, you know, what's happening right now to what's happening, what's um, already happened. And so uh, and the, the kids that I work with specifically were uh, in West Australia, year one age. So between the ages of, you know, late five to early seven, but the average age was around six years old. And another important part of what I did with my intervention as well was not only teach the kiddos the rules of how to use past tense, so knowing that, that that sound at the end of the doing word tells us something's already happened, and using visuals to teach that, I used um, a systematic cueing hierarchy, which is just a fancy way of saying that I helped the child when they got it wrong, moving from least to most support. So if, you know, I say, you know, we roll the Play-Doh, what did you just do? And the child says, I roll the Play-Doh, you know, I that's still grammatical, but I wanted to alert them to the fact that they you know, already finished doing it. So I'd say, oh, you've already done it though. Can you tell me again, what did you do? Yeah. And then, you know, if they didn't get it, then I'd recast, you rolled the Play-Doh, what did you do? If they still didn't get it, you roll the Play-Doh or you rolled the Play-Doh, what did you do? And if they still didn't get it, I would say, say it just like me, I rolled the Play-Doh, so you end that yeah. to the end really, really emphatically. And kind I of a very systematic approach to working your way through corrections, isn't it? It is, it is. And, you know, and this queuing hierarchy um, had been tested in the literature as well. So one of my supervisors, Sue Laytown, she um, was part of a, a series of studies that looked at that queuing hierarchy. Mm -hmm. So we decided to add that in just in case the explicit instruction wasn't, you know, going to be enough yep. but also we rationalize that it is still an explicit aspect because it's redirecting the child to the, to the goal of the therapy mm. um, it's helping them you know internalize that rule and it's really focused on production as well and i suppose that's the other thing that sort of sets the intervention that i looked at apart from the implicit interventions is that often with implicit interventions there's not much of an expectation that the child will say the target mm. but you know, I made the kids work, you know, they, yeah. they, actually, they had to say that past tense ED yeah. or whatever at the end of the verb each time. Um, and that's why I went, that's when I would use my queuing hierarchy if I didn't get it the first time. Oh, uh, and they're learning, aren't they? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. if somebody's learning something for the first time, I'd hope somebody would tap me on the shoulder and say, hey, actually, that's yeah. not quite right. Can you do it yeah. like this? Absolutely. And, you know, and some of this earlier literature, you know, the 90s looked at, you know, implicit interventions being beneficial because it doesn't interrupt the flow of communication if you're constantly mm -hmm. interrupting you might uh, the child might withdraw you know there's research to support that okay mm -hmm. and that was something that we did consider and that's why we took a very systematic approach to the research 
program, but yeah. in my experience with none of my participants, would they ever withdraw from my queuing or the expectation that they would produce the target. So, you know, I, I didn't see that, whether I had you know, a specific set of kids that, you know, someone else never, somebody else might not have had, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, but we were very, very conscious and very cognizant of that. So that's why we did take that really systematic approach to intervention. So we started very small with mm-hmm. three three kiddos piloting it at, you know, at, at a reasonably reflective service delivery of twice a week for five yeah. weeks uh, to see if there's any sort of change there. And then we um, wanted to follow up and have some maintenance as well. And we saw that it worked for these mm-hmm. kiddos, these three kiddos. So then we, um, that's when I actually enrolled in a PhD did another small scale study with nine children, but it increased the length of time to 10 weeks. Mm-hmm. And we saw even greater improvement. And we thought, okay, now we're probably at the point where we can actually look at a group comparison study. Mm-hmm. And so then we looked at uh, once a week for 10 weeks, where 10 kiddos got the intervention and 10 were just at, sort of at their school, treatment as usual is what we call it. And then once the 10 kiddos had received the intervention, the others ended up receiving the intervention as well. And, you know, overall, it showed that the intervention is better than no intervention. And once both sets of kids had received the intervention, there was no differences between them. So, so there's a couple of things I really like about that is one session a week for 10 weeks is about what a lot of speeches in schools are probably... Yeah. Doing yeah, it's about a school term, so that's you know achievable for those school speech pathologists who might be listening in. But also the fact that you are able to do that stop start, so you know one cohort received it uh, while the other cohort uh, was sort of their your you know trial group, you know, and then you switch them over. It sounds like after a term, yeah. and then you got the group that hadn't had the intervention got the intervention, and they made similar improvements. Yes. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So, yeah. That was a, it's a pretty, you know, uh, we're pretty confident that it showed us that there was intervention effect there, which is, um, you know, always good. Um, yeah. But, you know, like I, I, I do stress this a lot, I suppose, as, a, as both a, clin- a clinician, so a consumer of research and someone yeah. who does research, is, you know, we do need to start small sometimes because we yeah. can't go straight to, doing big trials mm. because what, what if it doesn't work what if we don't yeah. you know we've, we've just wasted our time we've wasted the time of the children we've wasted the you know whatever funding we've got for it yeah. so yeah yeah it's, it's important to build it build things up isn't it yeah and you know and there's other stuff that we're looking at now um you know how much support the the kiddos needed to get it right so mm-hmm. how much queuing was necessary mm-hmm. um, are some verbs harder to learn than others so mm. there's some other things we're still unpacking but the um overall you know intervention uh, research has sort of been done and it's out yeah. there now so We'll be able to link um, some resources to the podcast page. So I'm sure we can link people to the papers, but also you mentioned that it was based off the shape coding tools. So we thought maybe we could even link to the shape coding page if people are interested at the Morehouse School and College. Yep. Yep. And, you know, if there's trouble accessing papers, send them in. Email Email the author. (laughs) Right. We can do that. Send them your way. (laughs) Exactly, right. exactly. I'm always pestering people for papers. So oh, um, that, that's that's one thing I learned as well. For, you know, anyone who's listening who's ever afraid to email a researcher, they want you to email them. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's why we do it. <laughs> it's like a little feather in the cap. It I makes know, their really, day. 
please email us and ask us for stuff. So you've talked about the three kids you started with and then you've expanded. So you've obviously seen in your research, but also in your clinical work, a large number of children with DLD. Are you able to share a positive case study with us where you've really seen the research in practice and, and it's worked really well for maybe a particular child? Uh, all of them, Sean. I love. <laughs> of course, it's magic. This, yeah. No, no. Yeah. Um, no there, there's actually there's, there's two that do just that will always stick with me. And one participant was was part of the um, the pilot project with three children. Yeah. And he just you know he had such a uh, an amazing attitude to, to learning, so much so that his mum came up to me after I you know read back the results of the research and she said. He's correcting his three-year-old sister's grammar now, so thanks for that one. <laughs> That's <laughs> um, not annoying at all. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. And, you know, and he, he made such great improvement. You know, yeah, he wonderful. Was nearly, nearly at the ceiling you know, by the end of it. And, yeah. and another one that was part of the, um, the, the, my first PhD study, he um, just, again, would bound into the therapy sessions because they're all, each intervention session was based around a game. You know, and that's one thing that I learned throughout the research too, is that I didn't need to incentivize the kiddos with games because you can embed past tense intervention into any sort of game. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if you've ever used pop-up pirate, Sean, yourself. <laughs> oh, am I a speech pathologist <laughs> if I haven't used pop-up pirate at least? So, did the pirate pop? Yes, it did. You tell me it popped, yeah. you popped. know? Yeah, mm-hmm. so much you can do with so so few resources. Yeah. Anyway, he would always jump in there. And he's, he was just one of these ones that um, kiddos with DLD that had so much to say, but so ungrammatical. You know, he just mm. had no morphine, none of those little sounds at the end of any words, whether mm-hmm. it was, you know, possessive now, possessive S or mm-hmm. regular past tense. And then he ended up getting, reaching ceiling. And he got to 100%. And he stayed oh. there for five weeks. And I wish there was a way we could measure this. Um, yeah. But I think it's good that enthusiasm, that engagement, that, that you know, that wanting to learn. Yeah. The, it's what I saw with these two kids that really, really, um, you know, that was, I think, a really key ingredient. Absolutely. That. And I, I think that, like, that importantly, and I, I do want to mention this as well, is that, you know, we had a group analysis when we looked at our research so we could show that one group did better than the other the one that received intervention did better than the other group mm. but when i looked at the individual profiles of all of the kids that i've seen so there's been 33 in total mm. um some of them didn't make improvement um mm-hmm. to the point that we you would call statistically significant you know yeah. so i don't know these kiddos might have needed something else or they might have needed a little bit more a little bit less i'm not sure but it just it really highlights to me again as a researcher and i want and i want to uh, you know stress this to clinicians too is that just because things are evidence-based because of the research doesn't mean they're going to work for everyone so yeah knowing when to call it try something different and also knowing um whether the child you're working with is representative in that evidence base often i talk about i've got a number of children i work with but their profiles aren't representative in the studies that we refer to as evidence based so it might have been completed with a monolingual english speaking child whereas i'm working with a child who's immigrated to australia or you know maybe they might be older than the age that the population of the study so there's things to consider, isn't there, with any sorts of intervention as to whether the child you're working with actually is represented in there. Absolutely. And, and you know, we, we, the, uh, you 
DLD, even though they share this common diagnosis, they're mm. probably what well, happened with the most heterogeneous <laughs> of the clinical populations out there. You look at the range of scores of kids in yeah. really well-designed research studies, and yeah. the st standard deviations usually is high as the mean. So you know, there's something a little, a little bit weird going on there. <laughs> they're all individuals, and yeah, yes. I mean. I, I won't jump in and add about my research, but that's something I definitely notice when looking at the populations is that whilst we have a, I talk about a cluster of observable characteristics and we just label it as DLD or label it as another condition, those cluster of observable characteristics are really diverse. Um, mm. And sometimes children will have some or all or part of any combination of those communication skills. So it's... Yeah. What, what, the one thing I did have with my kiddos, though, uh, as part of my research was, they obviously all have their grammar difficulties, mm. but they all um, had quite strong receptive vocabulary um, mm. skills. So almost all of them performed within normal limits on the Peabody picture vocabulary test, which is a receptive yeah. grammar measure. So mm. that was one thing that we could kind of comment on, that all, the, all of these kids had strong receptive vocabulary, which might you know, mm. tell us something about you know, uh, a fundamental skill that's required to respond mm. well to explicit intervention. So having some that mental dictionary to pull upon yep. and then help sequence it in the order might actually be a potential area of I don't know, strength for your intervention study. You know, yeah, I mean, if, we, yeah. if we've got a kid that doesn't know what a, you know, a pirate is, mm, the playing pirate, it's going to be hard, you know? Yeah. So if you, if for those speech pathologists who are listening in, um, and they're really the key sorts of, key people to providing this sorts of intervention, what would be your top tips for clinicians supporting children with DLD to develop their grammar skills? Yeah, so I'm, I'm not aware of any research that's looked at explicit interventions where uh, a speechy or SLP hasn't had input. So it seems that a, for an explicit intervention to be effective, uh, SLP has to be involved. Um, so we need more, more research around that area, definitely, because if we can have teachers and caregivers involved. Mm -hmm. um, but I think really the, the, the take-home for, um, for the SLPs if, if I could give any, would be uh, always consider these implicit approaches. They, they are what we would say are best practice currently. So keep up with your recasting. We can all do that. Parents, uh, caregivers can do that. Uh, teachers can do that. So you can actually hand that over to, you know, your families and your support groups as a strategy to, to use. Mm -hmm. um, for speeches as well, try to use visual support, um, especially when you're modelling a skill, because we know language is very, and I'm sorry for some jargon here, it's very transitory, so mm. it doesn't stay still. It, it's no, it disappears. Yes. yes, and you know, and there's some theories to suggest that we, that's one of the main problems with our kids with DLD is that they can't hold on to it. So if you've got yeah. visual support, you can kind of, you know, have the child hold on to that information and refer back to it. Um, try cueing systematically. You know, this is what we do as therapists is um, don't just go straight for the model. Maybe try, you know, scaffolding a little bit, you know, mm. just helping the child get, get there on their own with a little bit of help. And if they're still not getting a little, little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. So um, using, that, using that systematic approach to cueing is really important too um, mm. and basing it on the needs of your child. Um, I love doing that um, 
least to most sort of modeling where it's, yeah. you know, or, you know, prompting where it's prompting, saying, yeah. I, I'm going to give you a little bit and then a little bit more and a little bit more. And you're kind of, I feel like in that instance, you're presuming competence, that you're presuming the child is able to achieve it. Um, yes. I trust that you're going to get there eventually. I'm just here to help guide you to the answer. And yes. eventually they need less and less of that. Whereas if I just go in and give you the, you know, the absolute most level of prompting straight away or the answer of support, it doesn't really give often those kids with slower processing times that need to think and digest yeah. on the, you know, um, on the question to, actually muster up the answer themselves so i really no, love that yeah. systematic approach and if we're not giving any support we're testing so yeah. it's uh, you know queuing is what we do as therapists you know mm. that's our active ingredient so it is it is really important and 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 reducing that scaffolding when, when, when we need to as well is really mm -hmm. important you can tell yeah. us where our kids are at um and the, I, think, I think the last thing i'd sort of really stress especially working on grammar uh, for, uh, for SLPs is to work on one thing at a time okay. um we it's you know we want to go in there and fix it all do everything and once exactly we research has shown time and time again we don't see transition to other skills um even if the kids are hearing it a lot in, in the sessions so for example if I'm working on past tense and I use present tense to sort of prime the child so the frog flips what did it do we're not seeing any transference to the sound at the end of flips but we are seeing the tip to the end of flipped so focus on one thing sort of prioritize um and also there's some research has been done by larry leonard that's you know showed that working on multiple goals at one time can actually slow progress when working on one goal at a time can actually speed things up so really, 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 really important is that often, as I said, all these observable clusters of characteristics or behaviours that you kind of want to do everything. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you can mix things up, do grammar, you know, for half a session and then you do, you know, narrative or vocabulary or whatever for the other. But yeah. try, you know, what we're, what we're kind of seeing okay. is, yeah, don't do past tense, possessive S and third person singular, present tense, sorry, all in the same session because you're mm -hmm. probably just going to confuse the absolute heck out of mm -hmm. the child yeah. and, and yourself. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, I'd be impressed with people who have that many resources all prepared and ready to go. <laughs> Pop-up pirate, sure. Pop-up pirate. Oh, I know. I know. Pop-up pirate. <laughs> what did we do before this? So you've talked then about, uh, you know, the clinicians, but as I said at the very beginning, we've got so many families who listen in and and educators and they they want to help you know they they and they can do so much to support the clinician working with their child and i i talk a lot about amplification you know mm -hmm. you you take what what's happening in the clinic room and amplify it across settings we're going to get such great um consistency and potentially good outcomes so with this pivotal role in mind at home and school what what are your sort of takeaway messages for families and educators what can they practically do at home or school to help support um, learners with DLD. Yeah, so like you said, with this amplification, just trying to get as best we can to get everyone on the same page. You know, mm -hmm. that way teachers and caregivers can keep an ear out for those specific difficulties. Mm -hmm. Like like you said earlier, you know, you can hear that a child's grammar is not quite right, but what is it 
it's not quite right. And as you know, linguists, as speech pathologists, we can define these things, we can pick them up, and we can we can educate and sort of say the reason that sounds off is because the words were in the wrong order, or the yeah. reason that sounds off is because this sound was missing at the end of this word. So mm -hmm. actually educating around that. Um, and then this also gives the kiddos more opportunity to practice. So if we know they've got trouble with regular past tense um, yeah. and we're all on the same page, you can tell some stories because stories, narratives are usually told in past tense. So they get to hear that a lot. And then when you're asking about what happened in the story, you've got another opportunity to hear and say things in past tense. So it gets, you know, it's just that sort of joint uh, unified front um, in, in terms of, you know, getting everyone on the same page. So there's more opportunity to provide support. Uh, and, and, and at this stage, I mean, for me as a clinician, uh, for someone who's been immersed in the research literature for quite you know a few years now um and has done my own research in the area it's just, it's it's recasting is what we mm. is probably the best thing that we can recommend that everyone can do yeah. so that's through again when the child says something in error you just say it back to them in the correct way personally i always have the child say it back to me so if the child says you know the pirate just popped i would say the pirate just popped tell me that again and just have them say, you yep. know, I'm listening out for the tip sound at the end of popped, basically. One of the most frequent questions I get from parents is, how much time should I spend doing that? Should I do it for all, every time they say something grammatically incorrect? Or should I set, pick a point in time? Or should I just do for the same error across the day? Is there any, any literature out there at the moment that's looking specifically at that the parents role in recasting and, and frequency of that yes i i there is there is yeah. i can't tell you off the top of my head no that's okay uh, I sprung it on what, you but what i would say is that yeah when you do hear the error recast you know mm -hmm. uh use every opportunity you can to give them good language input yeah saying things grammatically please 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 don't ever recast ungrammatically <laughs> you know, yes don't say don't you know, say the wrong incorrect say the word incorrectly it's a pet so, peeve for a lot of children's shows yes oh, like listening to telly yeah. Oh, yeah 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 I mean, sesame street's great but come on cookie monster, cookie monster on. let's get grammatical <laughs> yeah but yeah yeah absolutely you know um and, and even with our youngest bubs it's so easy to go into uh, you know motheries or fatheries baby talk yeah. or it sounds very ungrammatical yeah. don't speak ungrammatically always grammatically you know that's yeah. the best thing we can do for activities and we want to model that you know yeah. consistently don't we yeah we, we are we are the model we are the we yeah. are the learning platform for our kids language so let's yeah. Speak grammatically. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want me to make you up a T-shirt, Sam? Yeah, speak let's grammatically. Get, let's get grammatical. <laughs> let's get grammatical. I'm sure we can work something out. Awesome. So starting to wrap up now, because I'm conscious of time, um, and I, I think I can anticipate your answer here, but I'm going to ask it because I think the listeners would be keen to hear. Uh, in your opinion, what do you hope to see in the future for DLD in Australia and around the world? And it could be in your in research. It could be in your clinical work service delivery what are you thinking yeah so okay i'll take a a couple of pronged approaches to answer this question i think yeah. um so for, for research the research the intervention that i've conducted has been done by me yeah. so it's what we call uh, efficacy research in almost lab conditions 
the kids receive the same thing from the same clinician time and time again. So we know it's efficacious, but what we don't know is if other clinicians can deliver the intervention. So I would love to see this some research done, um, you know, ineffectiveness trials where a whole bunch of clinicians have a go at it. I'd love to see it done in different areas. So doing present tense, those little words that kids leave off, just leave off as well. Um, of course, if we have more people doing it, we can get larger sample sizes. Um, I'd love to see international collaboration. I'd love to see mm -hmm. you know, different labs, different groups across nations, across countries, across languages even collaborate and actually you know, look at uh, a relatively uniform intervention. Let's mm -hmm. all do it with our populations and bring together result results and see if there's some commonalities there. The intervention procedures, I'm very finicky about making sure that I give clinicians as much information as I can in terms of what I did. So for each of the, uh, the published studies we have, the interventions, I waffle on and on and on about them in the paper. And I've also got supplementary material that tells you exactly how to do it. So have a go at doing it and let me know, you know, send me a message on Twitter or on Facebook or an email and, you know, tell me if there's anything that you're noticing that's coming up. Um, because, you know, like I said, this is, was very lab focused research, so lab condition research. So, you know, those nuances that pop up, I might not have been tuned to. Yeah. My more holistic love, or my, 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 my more holistic um, desire would be to see more funding uh, mm. and more people doing research to support children uh, that have DLD. You know, it's more prevalent than some of our most highly funded disorders, yet the burden for our kiddos, for our teenagers, for our adults, for our families, for our economy, it's all just as great. So you know, raising awareness, getting some um, more funding to do the research to help best understand how to support those with DLD would be you know, my, my big, big aim, my big achievement if you know we could get everyone on board. And I was going to say, you only have small goals. It'll only take us the next however many decades to achieve. <laughs> I, know, I know. Just, But, you know, you've started small. I know. That's, I know. <laughs> I'm talking about, you know, changing the funding, funding schedule for, you know, nations when it's taken me four years to figure out I can improve past tense marking. <laughs> yeah, I know. But you've, but you've shown that it works and that's what, and that's uh, important. So. Yeah, absolutely. We're wrapping up and I've got one last question for you. At the DLD project, we're focused on self-care um, and trying to find time to breathe in our very busy day. As a researcher, a clinician, and um, it's as it sounds like a PhD candidate, very close to submission, um, what do you do to look after yourself? Uh, I'd suggest don't do a PhD. Um, <laughs> You're not allowed to say that. <laughs> no, I'm, Mary, I'm you joking. Say that. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. Do a PhD. It's great. No. Um, yeah. If you are doing research, um, you know whether it's research assistant work or or a PhD or a, a master's, treat it like a nine to five job as much as possible. You know, setting time for those little goals for reading and writing. That was a really big part of my self-care is not letting it flow into evenings as much as I could. I know you wouldn't live in a perfect world, yeah. but um, you know, nine to five as much as possible. All the cliches, you know, exercise, good diet, try to get try to get enough sleep. But <laughs> <laughs> with a small child, I don't yes, know how that's know. working out for you. No, 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 no. as the father of a month, eleven month old. Um, yeah. Yeah. The advice I was given was, you know, don't expect to change the world. Don't expect your 
if you're doing a PhD that you're going to win a Nobel Prize. Don't expect that, you know, uh, if you're a clinician that you're going to be able to cure every single difficulty that comes across your in, your caseload. So just take the little wins. Yeah. Know you'll make a difference. Um, reading, this is a bit of an obscure one, but reading for leisure outside of work, if you oh, can, yes. you know, like just make some time to read a novel. You yeah. know? I miss or, reading for pleasure. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Um, and the, for me, this is a bit of a personal one as well, is, is get a dog. I got a dog, quick pro quo. <laughs> yeah. So my, the, the deal was if I do a PhD, my wife can get a dog, but the dog's still very much been my outlet for <laughs> self-care and, um, yeah. you, know, you know, giving me time just to sort of, you know, decompress, go for a walk, go for a run, you know important yes have, have a companion that doesn't want to talk to you <laughs> and, just, <laughs> and they just listen and i was going to say and never asks you when your phd is finished no no when are you never, submitting yeah well, how's your writing going no well thank you so much for joining me today sam i really enjoyed our chat um and i'm sure that if people have any questions or would like to email you directly i'm sure you'd be very happy to receive anything <laughs> yes no, absolutely i do do my best to um, I sound like I'm swapping emails. Um, no, I, I, no. I, I love hearing from people. I, yeah. I, I really do. So. And we'll be sure that any of the things that we've talked about today will link into the podcast page if anybody's keen to read. Sounds good. Thanks so much, Sam. All right, thank you, Sean. So there you have it. DLD and grammar therapy. It was um, particularly interesting to consider the point on how difficult it is not only to learn grammar, but also to go from learning language to then language for learning. Uh, thank you for joining us and be sure to head to our website to access the resources Sam and Sean discussed today. If you have a topic you'd like us to investigate on our next episode or someone you'd like us to invite on the podcast, please let us know uh, via email at connect at thedldproject.com. And don't forget to visit our website to see our latest training opportunities and resources. There's heaps on our website, thedldproject.com.